Sounds may be perceived as color, or color as odor. I, I knew that the boys smoked pot, and they, they equally knew that I disapproved. I was free above the planet Earth, so it was rotating majestically below me. New Year in Australia. You're listening to New Weird Australia right now, and welcome along for another show. We've got a, a very special guest, well, a few very special guests coming in this evening, but we're going to kick it off with uh, Chris Abrahams uh, from The Next, and we're going to just play a little excerpt from uh, Silver Water now just to get you in the mood, and we'll be along with Chris in just a moment. didn't interrupt that at some point, we'd be uh, talking to you in about 50 or 60 minutes. Um, this is New Weird Australia. Welcome along to a very special show. It's uh, 10 past uh, nine and we're kicking off uh, tonight's show with a, an interview with Chris Abrahams, who's joined us here in the studio ahead of a couple of, um, or actually uh, a show tomorrow night in Sydney at the Metro, The Next, and um, then onwards to Brisbane, Byron, Canberra, and basically they're doing a complete lap around Australia and uh, a bit of a mini residency then in Adelaide. But anyway, welcome to the studio, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you in. And obviously, we're um, big fans uh, of the next music, and we just heard a, um, uh, an excerpt from uh, your most recent album, um, Silver Water, which I, I'm uh, chuffed to um, realise it was actually recorded in my hometown suburb of Camperdown. <laughs> it's always nice when you get those little little things. Um, yeah, it's a, a 67 minute um, uh, CD, and we'll, we'll re- return to that in uh, in a little while. But uh, just uh, while we're off air, there was an interesting sort of uh, ramble about uh, um, various synthesizers and sounds, and uh, I suppose the the world of sound, which is the world of the next. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how how you started working with sound, and and when you you really realised that that sound was where you you were going to be sort of living most of your life. As opposed to playing the piano, or you mean yeah, well, I, I suppose when 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 music and sound became really your life, when you when you really realised that um, what you were going to be doing was going to sort of take up so much of of your life, right? Well, I mean, in terms of wanting to become a musician, um, probably my uh, mid teens, mid sort of 16, 15, 16, I think. Uh, up until then, I think I'd had a fairly uh, generic kind of um, teenage adolescence. I'd, uh, you know, I was very much into bands like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, and you know, Pride of the Beatles, and you know, Jimi Hendrix, and um, which I dare say is great music. I'm not, but I think it was around about when I was 16, I managed to borrow uh, a few modern jazz records from the school I went to, and um, one of them was Cooking with the Miles Davis Quintet and the other one was a Charlie Parker record and there was something about those albums and I'd have to say probably Red Garland's piano playing who was in the Miles Davis Quintet at that time when I first heard 
um, his solo on My Funny Valentine, which I think is the, f- the first track on the album. Um, I think that was a really huge moment for me. I don't know, it was something that I'd never, something I heard that I'd never heard before and just sounded so sophisticated and, you know, inc- and from that, that's, I kind of, I think that's probably where I suddenly thought I'd really like to get serious about, you know, playing the piano. You you were better. already playing at that point. Yeah, I'd, I'd already. I'd, I'd, my parents were given a piano or lent a piano by some people that were going overseas and it ended up in my bedroom when I was about five. And I sort of had lessons on it for a few years and um, and then that, that kind of fell off. But I, ended, I kept playing it and I, I also had a bass guitar which I played a lot, but I, I always came back to playing the piano in my bedroom. Like it's handy to have a piano in your bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's, it was just one of those things. I mean, I possibly would never have, yeah, it's probably why I became a musician. That's probably more important than the Miles Davis record. Yeah, yeah. And um, so from that point on, um, did you uh, form uh, some sort of ensemble at that point or start, start playing, making your own music? Um, well, I, you know, I started playing with a lot of... Uh, I was introduced to a whole lot of musicians through uh, a friend of mine who had an older brother. And, I mean, we're looking now at the sort of late 70s, early 80s Sydney jazz scene, like uh, young people playing, like people like Mark Simmons and and Steve Elphick and uh, Peter Fine. I mean, the, I don't know if these names mean a lot, but, but they were, you know, they were young musicians in their early 20s, late teens that were really into... You know, kind of black American 60s music like you know and I, was, I got very much into Coltrane and Cecil Taylor and that sort of music like uh, be, you know after the Miles Davis mm. quintet records and um, and um, I mean I don't know if I formed my own band so much as just jammed with lots of people and you know tried to sit in with people and you know it wasn't until 1982 when or 1981 when Lloyd who's the bass player in the Knicks and I formed a kind of post-Coltrane or post-bop kind of modern jazz saxophone quartet called the Benders which were together for about uh, three years and um, that was very much in the kind of modern jazz style of you know saxophone solo piano solo bass solo drum solo and you know, and then you'd play the head at the end of the tune, and 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 that 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 kind of form, and um, and then that kind of broke up, and then actually about six months later, and this would have been in about 1987, so maybe about a year later, uh, Lloyd rang up and said, um, you know, do you want to form another band? So we that's when we formed the Next, actually in 1987. So. Mm. And obviously, I mean, um, you know, when we. When we listen to the next now, you know, nearly you know twenty, twenty two years later, um, you know, there's 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 definitely a sense when listening to it that um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to classify in terms of you know in, in terms of the sounds that you're making. When you first started out with the next, I mean, you're coming off the back of that kind of you know modern jazz um, period with Lloyd. I mean. Yeah. How did the next sound at that time? You know, were they were they coming from a slightly more kind of not traditional yeah. but but kind of more formal place? Or? I think in some ways we came off the back and sort of ran in the opposite direction. Right. You know, I think you know we personally I felt that you know with with the Benders uh, the way I mean I, I'm proud and you know it was a great I really enjoyed playing in it and everything but I 
I think I felt I wanted to play some music that wasn't based around such a you know solo soloist background mm. um, sort of model. And I also I think we also wanted to play music that wasn't quite as um, and this might sound strange considering we're talking about a kind of fairly obscure, you know, early 20, you know, people in their early 20s jazz band in Sydney, <laughs> but we wanted something that was a little bit less careerist right, um, right. in the sense of, you know, you know, wanting to, um, you know, move up the industrial <laughs> ladder, you know, play the, the, the game, so mm. to speak, of in the music industry. I think we sort of realised that there possibly wasn't really a place mm. for that, sort of thing and and it was wor- it wasn't really there was no point worrying about it so we approached music in a much more therapeutic way um i think much more i mean i think it was probably more of a case of growing up more mm. than anything and thinking well we just want to do something that we like doing and and if people like it um you know even better but for the first sort of year or so of the group um we just p- played in the in in rehearsal rooms and and did it because we, uh, quite early on, I think we realised we were doing something that was very different to what we'd done before, mm. and that we were getting different things out of the music, and it was actually um, massaging some part of our brain in a way that uh, you know we hadn't experienced before. <laughs> Sounds, yeah, yeah, no, no, completely, yeah. Was that was everyone yeah. sort of sold on it? Around the same time, did the, did the penny drop collectively? I, yeah, I mean, I can't. I don't know when. I don't have a, a feel, an experience of the penny dropping, but I know I get the feeling that the necks were fairly well formed at birth. You know, I mean, mm. I think we very quickly discovered that we wanted to play kind of long pieces without any any solos as such, and to not try and rely on um, you know kind of overtly virtuosic, crowd pleasing type things um which you know i mean you know it's quite uh, i mean maybe we haven't stuck to that to you know 100 percent. i mean there are times where i think what we do do what some of us do do stuff that's mm-hmm. you know kind of solo at times we mm-hmm. but that's within the nature of not ruling anything out i mean sure. we, you know anything's possible is the was basically what we wanted to do mm-hmm. and um and I do think, just getting back to the original thing, I mean, what I was going to say is that I do think it was in response to something that, um, some way the Benders approached music that, you know, possibly, um, you know, we wanted to do some, you know, do something different. And that that's our rel- troubled relationship with modern mm. jazz. Mm. I mean, I would never say, I mean, I think there's some, the, the formal structure of modern jazz, like, that, that I sort of grew up trying to play, um, has produced some great music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be in any way, you know, justified in saying otherwise. Yeah. But um, I think we wanted to kind of try and do something, you know, different. And um, t- in, in terms of what was happening around you in, in, in Australia at the time, I mean, uh, were, were you guys very much out, out on your own? I mean, was there were, were there other influences around that were that were coming to bear in, in a positive way, or or were you quite isolated in terms of what you were doing? Um, well, personally, for me, I mean, I think um, maybe some of the sort of independent rock groups that were playing around, um, the Benders were kind of associated with a, a label in Sydney called Hot Records that, uh, mm. like bands like um, the Triffids and. Uh, the Laughing Clowns, and after that, like other solo things of Ed Cooper's and stuff. 
And I think, um, you know, I, I kind of was influenced a bit by by playing in that sort of... Mm. Which in some ways felt a bit like kind of getting back to, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very you know, playing, being a modern jazz player in, in, in Sydney, um, and I'm not making a qualitative judgment, but I do think it, you know, there's, it's, it, at that time anyway, it was kind of, you know, a bit of a club. You know, it wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily related that much to, like, popular culture. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Or it was removed from, it was, you know, on a social level for me, I, don't, I didn't really have any friends mm. that were really that into modern jazz like I was. I mean, I mean, I had friends who were jazz musicians and sure. I became friends with them. But, you know, my other friends that I had, you know, like before that. Yeah. So I felt, you know, in a, in a sense, um, w- with, you know, playing in groups, you know, like playing with Ed and playing, you know, with people like the Triffids a, bit, a little bit, and uh, you know, knowing, hanging out with people in the Celebrate Rifles and groups like that, I felt that there there was something there was a slightly more natural um, relationship between that and Australian culture. Mm. Like I felt personally that I, you know, I had my heroes, and I had I worshipped people like John Coltrane, and I worshipped you know McCoy Tyner, and they were unattainable things that magic that came off vinyl records and and that I listened and listened to and wanted you know wanted to be but I think eventually part of me just felt well I I don't actually think you know I'm really going to I mean I can try as hard as I want to emulate that culture I mean it's it's something that maybe I can't emulate Mm. Mm. so and I think I brought you know the next in many ways was also trying to get to rediscover you know, what position can you play instrumental music in Australia and, mm. uh, you know, that may be, be a bit more relevant. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, the, the mid-80s. Sure, know, yeah. Of, I mean. And, you know, I, I, I guess, that you know, there was a, there was, there was a point there um, sort of towards the end of the 80s and early 90s, certainly in a popular culture sense, you know, where electronic music kind of gave way to more kind of, you know, for want of a better term, kind of ambient, but that kind of long-form instrumental music that became a little bit more acceptable, if you like, from a popular mm. kind of cu- mm. cultural point of view. But that didn't really happen uh, until, you know, a few years later. That that may that then might have led more people kind of down into the path to to explore that kind of stuff. Um, should we take another listen, Danny? To, sure. Uh, uh, to something just from, uh, a little bit more from Silverwater now. It's, uh and Chris has brought in some vinyl, so hopefully I think we might uh, play a couple of tracks uh, before too long. There'll be no work done today in Sydney. A million of us are on the move, swarming into the streets like bees in the sun. No, weird. Australia. 
This is New Weird Australia. <laughs> you wouldn't have known it by uh, listening to that particular track. Select by Chris Abrams, who is uh, um, in the studio with us here on uh, New Weird Australia. We, uh, prior to that track, which we'll talk about in just a sec, we uh, heard another excerpt from Silverwater, the most recent Next album. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about that that track that we just heard, and uh, you, you brought that in. We've uh, asked you to bring in a few selections, which we'll scatter through the, the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about that record. Well, I mean, it's a great, great record. It uh, belonged to my father, who bought it, I think. I think it's, the date's on the album now. I can't remember, it's like late 50s, oh, Decca. Yeah. But it's a, it's a group called Charles E. Wegboo and his Archibogs. <laughs> and I, they were a kind of Lagos um, nightclub band from the 50s. And um, I guess that record has always been an extremely, I mean, ever since I was, I can remember, um, I remember that album, and uh, my father never really played it that much. But I, I kind of discovered it, really got into it, sort of in my late teens. And I, I think the, you know, there's the sound of that horn section and the the rhythms are just uh, fantastic on it. Mate. I'm sure it's been pulled out at the odd party over the years. It's been played a lot, and I think it's testament to the vinyl that it still sounds it's like that. Great. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, so um, we'll uh, sort of explore a few other uh, choices. There's some um, beautiful smelling old vinyl records that that, uh, have been brought in, so I'm looking forward to sort of hearing more about that. Um, Before that, when we had another selection from Silverwater, um, and of course Silverwater is... uh, the latest album from from the next. Um, tell us a little bit about how how this one came about. Um, coming off, uh, I guess, coming off the back of uh, the last uh, recorded album, Chemist, I guess, a few years back. Um, what was the initial kind of genesis and, and inspiration for, for Silverwater? I think, like with most of our studio albums, the the inspiration was just sort of turning up, <laughs> and we kind of, you know, one thing leads to another. Like someone. I think Lloyd came up with the first sort of, uh, you know, I've got this idea and away he went and then, you know, we kind of quite naturally sort of just kept building. And We had about a, I think it was about eight or nine days in the studio to record it and then we mixed it about um, 18 months later, um, again in about eight days, I think. Mm. And then we mastered it about a year later. Right. <laughs> had you, um, in the interim between the actual recording and the mixing, had you been listening to it at all? Or was it something you just went straight back to? Yeah, I think we'd, we'd all kind of listened to it. But, I mean, we, we this re- represented the first album we'd recorded on Pro Tools okay. from the start. So, you know, the sort of listening copy we had, which, I mean, we recorded like 60 tracks or something. I think it was almost as wide as it was long on the, uh, you know, on <laughs> quite a high resolution, you know, zoomed. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it probably didn't bear, it didn't really bear that much resemblance to what uh, what it ended up being. I mean, it could have ended up anywhere, really, yeah. I mean, an f- infinite number of possibilities, and we moved things around a lot, which is probably something we don't normally, we hadn't really done before, because we'd... Um, in the studio, always use two-inch tape, and uh, you know, moving stuff around. Although it's possible, it's mm. certainly a lot more. You know, requires a lot more uh, labour than just sort of cutting, cutting and pasting in Pro Tools. So you went from a, a limited option scenario to a sort of limitless. You know, did you have to sort of? Uh, how did you approach the mixing then? Was it take that away and see how it sounds, and just a, a, an evolutionary process? Um, 
Yeah, I think we, we just, you know, like decisions have to be made quickly. Mm. And if things worked and sounded good, then we'd stick with them. Yeah. Mm. And that's not to say any other way would have sounded good as well. I mean, uh, you know, it just so happened that, that, that this was what ended up after eight days. I mean, yeah. maybe having a time constraint also, you know, came to bear on the, you know, the way we went about mixing it. It's nothing like a deadline in yeah, some ways. Yeah. And coming off the back of that process versus, you know, uh, as you say, doing it in more, uh, doing it to the two-inch tape or, and, and doing it in more kind of uh, fixed sense in terms of uh, working with the results, how do you think now, uh, is you you happy with that experience in terms of this is a, a methodology that you would you now continue to pursue as part of the next? I think in insofar as studio records go, I think, yeah, we probably would, It would be natural for us to continue along these lines. I think we learned quite a lot in, you know, Silverwater. The, you know, possibly, you know, we'll, we'll, that's the way we'll, yeah, look at things. It's interesting because it actually, um, you know, as, as one 67 minute track, it actually sounds, um, perfectly holistic. I mean, it really does sound like it was all done on, on one take, and 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 it's all there. Yeah. Of course, there are movements on it that come in and out, but it's yeah. uh, it's quite exquisitely edited then, to, uh, because you actually don't get that session that it, that it was actually that that disparate. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the name Silverwater, of course, um, references our local, um, you know, Her Majesty's down in. Uh, towards uh in silver yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah lloyd the bass player came up with the name you see i think we're actually while maybe while we were still recording it i think um he said what do you think of the name Silverwater?" and we thought about it and went yeah all right <laughs> which actually mightn't sound that big a deal but when you've spent a year arguing about the name of a record to actually have the name when before you finished it was quite some totally yeah <laughs> totally new experience for us yeah. how do you um do you play that track live at all or or do you no we um we've always kind of had the live band and the studio band so to speak um as two very different i mean not I mean, different approaches yeah. to to making music and 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 different audience i think it's a very i think a live audience is a, a very different audience to a, a an audience of listening to a cd mm. And there are certain things that we do live. Um, for for instance, um, people seeing three instruments on the stage and us playing three conventional instruments, and then and people hearing kind of choirs and bagpipes, and you know somehow emulating in this sort of some, somehow emanating yeah. from this uh, you know acoustic wash that we can kind of make. Um, and I don't think you can really do that on a studio album to the same extent mm-hmm. um, and the studio albums are much more orchestrated yep. and they're much more conscious they're much more um, I've got an idea why don't I go in and do this for a little while <laughs> and see what you think Yeah, um, that approach isn't how we play live when we play live we just start playing and, and wherever it goes it goes and so we, it's a blank page really yeah but we're we're kind of transported by the music and and we don't make conscious decisions often, I don't think. Yeah. If I make a conscious decision to to think in five minutes' time I want to be up the top of the keyboard because I've got this thing I think <laughs> might work, you know, that, w- I, that would be like, that's not how I should be playing. I yeah. mean, I would think I'm not having a good night if I'm thinking that. Yeah. You know? 
So, yeah, we've never tried to emulate a record or uh, in any way. I mean, this has never been a... Do you, um, just interested uh, how you approach the live show then. Um, you mentioned um, a little bit earlier tonight that you've played at, at the Corner Hotel in Melbourne many, many times, uh, over 30 times. Um, is, is, is the room itself that you play in important and, and how does that affect your performance, do you think? Very important. Um, I mean, we'd, I'd probably classify the Corner Hotel as, as, as one of the, in the genre of rock venue yeah, for us. Certainly. Um, you know, it's a big PA and it's got a kind of pub sort of feel Sticky to carpet. it. Sticky <laughs> carpet. Um, and I think that influences the way we, we play. I mean, other times, you know, we've, we've played totally acoustically in churches in front of, you know, a hundred people sitting down in a very acoustically, you know, pristine, for want of a better term, environment. And I think we play very differently that, not just psychologically, but also, um, you know, the way the sound reverberates in the space has an enormous effect on what we do. In fact, you know, it's one of the defining things um, is what sound comes into in the space we're playing. What, what, what sound are we making in this space? And that will determine where the, the piece goes. I mean, because that's really only something that we can discover by playing the music. And you get, you know, to sort of simplify that, you know, I would say be playing away and I'd hear some sort of odd harmonic and, and that could be a result of mm. the PA... The, the the hollowness of the stage, the size of the room, the carpet, whatever you know. I mean, if I start hearing something interesting, I'll try and gravitate towards that and try and discover what you know what that sound is, whether it's me making it or whether it's mm. you know Tony and me making it or Lloyd and me making it or you know us all three or not mm. you know. Um, and so yeah, I mean, we're very spatially. Uh, what's the term? Uh, connected to the space it's uh it's part of the definition of what we do and that 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 defines the live experience what happens in that room Mm. as opposed to something that's compressed onto a a, some sort of medium well yes yes but also you know when i getting back to the cd vinyl uh, cd live uh recorded live uh dichotomy i mean i we kind of felt we feel that sort of like wild kind of dynamic crescendos um weren't something that really worked for us in the studio we couldn't you know contrive that it's got to be something that happens in the moment that the music sort of builds you know and also from the listener's point of view we felt that you know a crescendo climax which which in the live situation we very much depend you know that's part of what we do is build things up to a certain point and then you know start again and um listening to a cd of that i think you know you may be listening to it once the danger is you know it's not something you'd go back to you know you the excitement of the build is possibly not something that can be conveyed very well in a premeditated contrived studio setting but um in the live setting the audience you know is like us and we you know they we carry every the music carries everyone along in this you know in this way now, tomorrow night, um, you are here in Sydney to play at the Metro. And uh, so, what do you, I mean, you've played the Metro before. Um, what do you expect the, the space at the Metro to to kind of give you? I mean, are you, do, you, do, you, do you go in there with, having played there before, have to have expectations and then, you know, maybe um, you'd be surprised by what, what happens on the night? Or? Well, yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I'd like to, yeah. 
Um, you want to be surprised. Yeah, I do, yeah. Uh, in, in all honesty. But, um, I mean, again, I think it's sort of a, I would put it in the genre of a, one of, you know, a rock type yeah. pub gig. Um, so I think it'll be very boisterous and, and uh, you know, I think it'll get loud. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you are you playing yourselves tomorrow? Or do, you, do you have anyone playing with you? Or is it straight into? It's just the just the three of us. We'll be playing two yeah. sets. Right. Okay. Yeah. So make sure we get there early. No yeah. tardiness. <laughs> Indeed. Now I wanted to talk um, a little bit about um, this other project um, that you've been working on um, with Claire Cooper, um, who uh, is uh, also uh, an Australian artist who, like yourself, spends a lot of time in Berlin. And uh, this is actually a CD that we've uh, we've played a couple of times mm. on, on the show uh, called Germ Studies uh, for Guzeng and uh, DX. Um, Claire, of course, and uh, yourself on, on DX. But one of the interesting things about it, of course, is that uh, spread over two discs, you've managed to cut this into 198 different tracks, um, all of which come with their own uh, illustration from, from a different artist on, on the wall chart. Um, tell us a little bit about this project because it's it's not often that you know art, artists will approach a project and say we're going to do a two hundred track double CD set. I mean, it's not it's a, quite an uncommon approach to presenting music. How did that idea come together? Well, largely we wanted the um, the option of people to be able to listen to it on um, an iPod on random shuffle, mm. and we wanted lots of you know options and and you know I mean we wanted the maximum amount of. Uh, Shuffle ability, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess, and, and I mean, it's I, it is a CD. So there's there's ninety nine tracks on each CD. I guess if we'd made it totally for iPod, you could have many more tracks. Yeah. But we we wanted to release a CD, a double CD. So um, you know, one hundred ninety eight tracks was the, the you know the the closest we could get to you know infinite um, <laughs> variation. Um, but um, you know, some of the tracks vary from like about three or four seconds to five minutes. I think the longest mm. one is so. And also, you know, I mean, I'd like people. I think we wanted people to to experience it like one long track as well, mm. like not to um, not to have it, uh, you know, too much of a, a labour to kind of listen to. And I think each track sort of flows into the other to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. And I was certainly, um, I was certainly surprised that um, how 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 well it did flow in that sense that you, that you could quite happily sit down and listen to ninety nine very short tracks back to back and actually get a sense of listening to a whole piece as well. Mm. Um, and actually, because I've because I've only listened to it on CD, it had, didn't actually occur to me to think, oh, hang on, I should rip this and and shuffle it. But now that you've said that, I mean, you actually have you know thousands of possible variations of of that set, and I guess that's that's part of the idea that. Mm. Uh, you know, everybody listening to the album could hypothetically get a completely different experience from each other, but also every time they listen to it as well. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it's—I'm trying to remember the um, the overall running time. I think it's only about forty-five minutes per side, so it's not a huge time investment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let, let's take one of the slightly longer tracks then. Um, I've got Danny to to cue something up. Oh, I just set it up in continuous play mode. <laughs> oh, did you? Great. Well, let's 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 give it a go. Let's listen to the first clutch then, Danny. Okay. Excellent.
There we have uh, Chris Abrahams and Claire Cooper. Um, a few tracks, actually the first four tracks from Germ Studies. Almost rounds off our, our time with you, Chris. But um, before we do that, we're going to we're going to play another track of your selections. But look, uh, it's been great to have you in the studio. Thank you very much for for coming along and spending some time. Thank you very much. And um, tell us a little bit, Chris, about um, about this next track because you you brought in some vinyl, um, and uh, this one is a Doctor John track. Yeah, and uh, tell us tell us what what this one means. It's, um, well, it's my favorite Doctor John album. Enough said. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Black <laughs> John the, the Conqueror. It's um, Black John the Conqueror cool. off the Night Tripper. Nice one. Thanks, Chris. off so we can see you and then apologize to your neighbors for frightening no, them no 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 i'll leave these on no i like them no. we're australia 